podcast where myself, John, and my friend Chris talk about a couple movies around the theme of our choice. Chris, how are you on this fine Sunday afternoon? I'm doing great, John. Thanks. Uh, it is, we finally have hit that kind of perfect mid-November weather. It's chilly, but sometimes there are a couple warm days. I have got uh, something called a Grand Cru, uh, a Scotch Ale from Barrel Monks Brewery, or brewery. <laughs> It tells you how much of it I've already had. Uh, but it is the perfect way to have a nice Sunday afternoon talking to my buddy about a couple of films of his choosing this month. Indeed. And uh, before we get to that, uh, yeah, I uh, I don't usually uh, do a lot of uh, day drinking. My life doesn't really allow for that. But I have a nice uh, local raspberry ale uh, that uh, is left over from a movie night from showing my friend Rand for the first time. So it was uh, it's a nice little Sunday afternoon treat. And I deserve a treat because this is the month of November. And in the month of November, so many important things happen. Uh, but one of them is it is my birthday month. And Yay! So, Happy birthday, sir. Thank you. Uh, I'm now officially in my late 30s uh, before I, I could kind of like skirt by on still saying that I was in my mid 30s. But now as official, I'm 38. I, I can't say I'm in my mid 30s anymore. However, because it is uh, the birthday month, we thought we would try something uh, this month and basically have me pick a couple movies that uh, have stuck with me for a very long time that sort of predate my, you know, intentional love and watching of movies as opposed to just being a thing that uh i did because that was a thing you did uh there are uh th i think a movie that also would have possibly been up for contention in this is uh the movie tron uh but i kind of disqualified it because it eventually did get one of those uh legacy sequels it in fact was like one of the first ones to get the 20 30 years later sequel um and at this point although i do love the simpsons uh joke about homer saying like has anyone seen the movie tron and then everyone says no um the movies that we are going to talk about today are movies that truly truly i don't believe anyone has talked about uh and am very very excited to talk about certainly no danger of either of these films getting legacy sequels <laughs> i think it's safe to say one of them, I might say, actually would be fun to do, and one well, we have to see. But let's. Uh, th this is going to be, I think, a brisk uh, <laughs> episode. Uh, so why don't we get to our first movie for today, which is Condor Man. Condor For the tens of people who just heard the word Condor Man and is wondering, what is Condor Man? Uh, Condor Man is a 1981 Walt Disney produced uh, picture uh, starring Michael Crawford and uh, more, most notably, even though he is not the protagonist, uh, Oliver Reed, um, who may secretly be the best thing about this entire movie. Um, what is Condor Man? Okay. Condor Man is a movie about a a comic book writer and illustrator uh, named Woody Wilkins. He has uh, he has this comic called uh, Condor Man, and he is has this weird obsession with having his comic books be realistic. And so he and Condor Man, I think, is supposed to be a spy that uses gadgets. They don't get really much into what the actual character in the comics is about, but based on what this movie is about, you kind of make that assumption. Um, and so the movie opens with him 
in Paris with this cheap ass looking uh, flight suit that he tests by jumping off of the not the top of the Eiffel Tower, but like one of the like he's he's somewhat up on the Eiffel Tower and jumps off and tries to test it because that way, if he if it doesn't work, then he won't put it in the comic book. That this is a bizarre obsession, which I don't really remember, but is kind of the way that I, I could see how someone could see that being necessary to sort of like how the rest of the movie works is like, well, he's obsessed with making sure that everything that Condor Man does in the comics could actually happen in real life. Uh, otherwise, in his words, the kids will know when I fake it. Um, because he finds himself in uh, Paris uh, testing this stuff out with his friend Russ, uh, or no, it's not Russ, is it? Who's his friend's name again? His friend's Russ. Harry. Yeah. Oh no, Harry. Oh no, his fr- Harry. Harry's the friend. Harry is a file clerk for the CIA who has sort of brought, uh, who, who's sort of the guy who ha- brings Woody along to Paris, and um, Harry's boss has this. Uh, oh, also, the the test of the wingsuit goes terribly, and he falls into the river. Um, he's recovered, but it, it doesn't work. Um, but Harry, who again works as a, a clerk for the CIA, uh, his boss says, hey, we need to have these do the, this exchange of papers with our Russian contact in Istanbul. And uh, it's it has to be a civilian, but it's super not important. Just find someone, anyone at all that you can find to uh, to do this exchange. Just have them meet the contact, exchange papers and then go on. And so he sensing an opportunity to give his friend a sense to find out like what spy life is really like. He offers his friend Woody a chance to say, like, hey, meet the contact, exchange these papers. You're doing a solid for your country. It's no big deal. It's all fine. And then from there, hijinks ensue, misunderstandings happen. And the person that Woody is supposed to meet is actually a beautiful woman named Natalia, who is... Uh, not is supposed to be a civilian, but is actually a KGB agent who wants to defect. And because he bungles his way through the whole encounter, she thinks that he's actually a top secret agent. And so then later, when she wants to defect, she demands that Condor Man, the pseudonym that Woody uses when he goes for the meet, uh, be the person who brings her over. And that's how Woody ends up being sucked into a spy adventure where he tries to bring in a defecting KGB agent. Um, and of course, Oliver Reed plays uh, Natalia's boss, lover, whoever he is supposed to be, uh, who is trying to bring her back to the Soviet Union. He essentially Chris, plays Oliver Reed with a Russian accent. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> the thing that caught me at first, and like we'll talk about the the highs and lows of this movie, because boy, are there both. Um, but the, I think I remember thinking at first, the thing that I didn't remember from uh, all the times I watched it uh, from the VHS, the tape VHS, VHS I had as a kid was this like obsession with realism because in the, like later in the movie when he like he, cause he falls in love with Natalia, obviously like the whole thing is predicated on him, like trying to impress her and sort of like fumbling his way into becoming an actual secret agent. Uh, but like when he draws her and and she becomes a character in his comic book. She's laser lady. And, and I thought his whole deal was like, 
realism and like anything that happens in my comic books has to be real life and i was like there's no fucking way that this laser lady is based on anything it's it's, it's fantasy shit which is great but I, I was that was that was the first thing i noticed chris i could go on and on about you know watching this uh having it having it taped off of whatever sunday channel thing it was going on at the time and then watching it as, well as a kid but this is your first time watching it what <laughs> tell, tell me about your experience watching this movie yeah so um when i was watching it as you so noted for the very first time in my life at the age of 50 i uh my first thought was like john picked this because he probably and i'm gonna guess this I, you didn't really call it out but i'm gonna assume you saw this as a child uh, and there are certain things about this film, I'm going to assume, that really stuck with you to the point where you have fond nostalgic memories of it now that you're uh, in your late, as you say, 30s, <laughs> which, yeah, there's no getting around that 38. There's no mid 30 for you at this point. Um, and I totally get that. Watching it, the first thing that I thought of is this is Disney doing My Little James Bond, basically. This Bingo. is James Bond for the kids, right down to, I mean, they wouldn't have known this at the time, but Barbara Carrera, who who, who plays Laser Lady Natalia, uh, she goes on after this to be the lead Bond girl and Never Say Never uh, Again, I believe, is where she's in. Yeah, Never Say Never Again. Um it, it, you know, you have um, you have an evil villain who has a weird art organization, and Oliver Reed, his henchman whose name escapes me at the Morovich. moment. Uh, yes, Morovich. Because he's has Jaws. like a chrome eye, you know, one eye missing, kind of like Jaws from the Bond series and stuff like that. This is definitely Disney slash Buena Vista saying, "Hey, let's make a James Bond movie for the whole family," um, and. I'm kind of shocked that yeah yeah this is not this is not a good movie. This is not a good movie at all. But this movie is definitely formulated to within an inch of its life to appeal to kids who have not maybe had that James Bond experience but they want to have they want to give those kids the flavor of a James Bond experience while kind of sitting firmly in their wheelhouse. Uh, and this movie does that. In fact, I would say that um, Despite some of the terrible, terrible pieces in this movie, and we'll talk about one in particular that I, I don't know if we have the same thing, like what's the worst part about this movie? We'll get into that. But um, shockingly, when you talk about like realism and Woody's, you hit the nail on the head, like Woody is has a French, a weird friendship with the CIA analyst and he gets embroiled in this. Um, this adventure, but one of the things he insists upon is like, I must have all of my designs or I will not go through with this, this mission. And those designs result in not only for 19, this was 1981, but like for years after, this has like one or two completely kick ass action sequences that 100% rise above the silliness of the plot. Um, so, you know, yeah, this is a terrible movie, man. Uh, but. It's the t type of terrible movie that Disney was really good at making back in the late 70s and early 80s, like Escape from Witch Mountain, like all these weird kind of movies that they had set back then. But, you know, they get the right people to do certain things. And even though it's a silly, very silly movie, you have a couple pieces that totally make it even as an adult not having seen it before, make it worth watching. I, I feel like the... 
I remember going through and watching, like as I was watching it, remembering anytime that anytime that Oliver Reed is on screen or his henchmen are doing stuff. Uh, the henchmen are part of uh, what I think Natalia refers to as like their elite squadron, uh, the Prognoviach. Uh, I remember <laughs> any, when those when that stuff starts popping off, like the car chases and like the boat chase at the end. Um, like I remember my mom like talking about how because because she would often be like these you're right these are family movies right so we'd watch these as a family and i remember my mom often talking about like how the 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 kgb stuff was like leaps and bounds the best part of this movie um like anytime we're dealing with uh would the protagonist himself or his dopey sidekick uh even you know barbara Kerr, who's you know she's nice and she seems to be falling you know, for his, for Woody's inexplicably, charms. she's Inexplic- falling for his. Charm. That's that's the problem with <laughs> the, her character, not with her, just that she's like, he's a, he's clearly an idiot, and 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 I think to the movie's credit, I actually think that the movie is smarter about like this guy is clearly out of his league at all points, uh, in a way that I don't think I would have quite would have clocked, but like, mm-hmm. but yeah, it's it's the 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 stuff that I think that works best in this movie is. Uh, Anytime we're sort of leaving those the the silly heroes aside and just focusing on Oliver Reed chewing the scene, uh, or the like the 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 coordination of like the 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 cars and the boats when they actually do have their action scenes, um, like I legit um, when the when the Prognoviach are hunting down our protagonists and the the coordination of like how they drive, uh, yeah. like they, 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 they systematically evade all of his guns and weapons and stuff just through like, in, like that is legit impressive. And for, given how some other parts of the movie feel incredibly low effort, uh, <laughs> Yeah, that, that, well, that stuff sticks with me. If 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 Disney did anything right, um, and I won't say that they did a lot right in the casting, and we'll talk about the casting momentarily, but um, the primary stunt coordinator for a, a lot of those scenes is Remy Julien, um, who did the Italian job and a bunch of James Bond films. So when you put that together, and then you watch the my favorite part is the car chase scene where. Woody like designs this super like it's a bond car basically except yeah. it's in 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 true kind of Woody fashion it is so over the top in its color scheme and it's like yellow and it's got all these things it has a instead of a shield it, it it's a shield but it's also a ramp that comes out of the car specifically designed it kind of brilliantly that if you're going to do a head-on collision with another car, that it would go up the ramp and, and launch over you. And all of it is done practically, and it looks phenomenal. It, it is it, it is like you were watching this dumb, bumbling family movie, and all of a sudden they put a legit James Bond action sequence in the middle of it. Uh, and it's fantastic. It, it, it really, I stopped, and I literally rewatched the scene before continuing on with the movie because I enjoyed it so much. I even like the like I even like how they set up like not even so much Oliver Reed uh, cuz he can he can handle himself he doesn't need any help but like even the establishment of the henchmen when like the five cars are driving in formation driving up to the town and everyone is just like oh shit they know what's up they start closing their windows and like <laughs> yeah. one kid looks at the window and the guy with the glass eye looks at him and he's like ah <laughs> I like I call me call, call me a sucker but like that shit like that shit actually works as far as establishing them as like, yeah, I don't want to fuck with these guys. 
Yeah, it works really well. I mean, I I don't know much about Charles Giroux, who was the director for this, um, but when he needs to, he's really good at stringing together like a good set piece. <clears throat> now, what fails, though, I would say, John, and, and I don't know how you feel about this. Um, Oliver Reed is Oliver Reed. I've I've he's he's definitely slumming here, and he's not. Even though he's chewing the scenery, we've seen him chew scenery, sir. <laughs> that's, that's, and, yes. This is, the material does not, not rise to him, that's for yeah, sure. He is not chewing. Like, you can tell he's chewing, but kind of half-heartedly um, in this film. And he's still uh, the best part. Uh, he's, he's still like the best actor yeah, in this oh, film. Yeah, by, like, without a doubt, he's yeah, yeah. the best part. Um, I love seeing, so kind of growing up in that time period, um, Harry James Hampton, um, I know him, as soon as I saw him, I'm like, oh, that's the dad from Teen Wolf. That's how I know him. Uh, and then Dana Elkar, who plays the the, the head CAI guy, he was uh, the co-star of MacGyver. It was one of my favorite shows when I was a kid growing up in the late 80s. Um, and they do their Disney thing well. Like, there's a, like... Disney's conception of how the CIA works is very Disney-ish, <laughs> where like you have the head of the CIA and you have a file clerk and the head of the CIA goes, I'm going away. You handle this uh, Russian, uh, you know, document swap. Don't worry about it, file clerk. And definitely have a civilian do it. And definitely have a civilian have do it. A- it totally may- makes sense. And by the way, it's, it's no problem that all this time you've been working with this cartoonist and funding his ability to try these contraptions to see if it will work for his comic book. We're going to gloss over that because we're the CIA. Like, that is very Disney, and I don't mind it. I'll tell you what I do mind, John. Um, I know Michael Crawford has a really great reputation. He was the, I think he was the original Phantom of the Opera for Andrew Lloyd Webber, as well as a bunch of other things. Michael Crawford is terrible in this movie. (laughs) I don't know what accent he's using because he's English, but he's using, I don't know if he just thinks this is how Americans talk, but his accent and voice is a trial. (laughs) Yeah. That's the way I can explain it. You're, you're not wrong. And that's why I think Barbara Kerr actually takes some blowback on this is because he yeah. is so terrible that you can't see what she sees in him. Uh, the uh, a thing I definitely notice is when she, when like when they're on the run and she's talking or he's talking about how, what he'll love about America, he starts listing all these random facts of things that happen in America that she'll love. And one of the things he says is senior prom. And I'm like, this woman is a grown ass KGB agent. What the fuck does she want with senior prom yeah the script does him no favors but neither does that like i i will attempt it very briefly but he kind of talks like he's like my name is woody and like i have no idea where the hell that came from but i don't know a human being that talks like that it it is very distracting well and and like when he like part of the reason why or, or well the main reason why he uh as like as a character as the character is conceived gets into this is because he like he doesn't just write the comic books about it he like he fantasizes about this stuff and so then when 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 harry gives him the mission to just give some unimportant papers to an unimportant russian contact uh he starts immediately doing his like bogart impression to the point that harry even like even harry even like tries to get him to like hey calm down like you need to like you need to just like rein it in a little bit but it but it's so like ill calibrated that like it 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 sort of goes past the intended 
uh, satire of Woody as the silly, uh, out of touch protagonist and just, it's just bad. I completely forgot that he attempts a Bogart impression. And now I, I am almost angry at you, sir, for having reminded me. <laughs> That he tries it, so so bad. If there should, if there was ever a need for a, like a fourth breaking the fourth wall moment, it should have been right there. Where even Harry looks at the camera and goes, "Guys, I am so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what to tell you about this." Um, but y- y- you know, I, I I think part of what distracted me too was, and I don't know if you're familiar with this show. Did you ever see The Greatest American Hero? No. So, um, stars William Cat and uh, Robert Culp. Robert Culp, uh, very famous. He was very popular in the 60s, uh, maybe early 70s, for I Spy, spy show with Bill Cosby. But in the 80s, there was a show called The Greatest American Hero. Uh, being Canadian probably didn't translate over to you. But it's about uh, a young guy who finds a suit, and the suit gives him superpowers. Um, but he's still learning, so he's terrible in the suit. Like, he can fly, but he typically crashes into things. He doesn't know how his strength works. And the star of that was a gentleman named William Cat. Michael Crawford looks like William Cat, but when he opens up his mouth, it just sounds like like a cartoon character trying to do the same thing. And I had wished, like, part of my thing the whole time was, man, I wish they'd gotten someone like William Cat would have been great at this. Because when he doesn't talk, it actually works pretty well. There's an opening sequence um, when he goes to the meet, um, and I, it's in Istanbul, and he meets yeah. with Natalia, um, and then he's got the briefcase, and then all these agents attack. And it's kind of like like a Jackie Chan moment where because of his bumbling, like his bumbling inadvertently, like disarms and 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 takes care of all of the henchmen who are throwing knives and doing stuff like that. And it really works like it as a physical comedy set, as an action set piece. It's really entertaining. It's really fun. Um, it. I won't say it's believable, but it has a kinetic energy to it and a vibrancy to it that fits the rest of the movie. And then the second he talks, like it all just dissipates. <laughs> it, it just blows my mind. I think this actually could have been a really, really fun, stronger movie if they had cast anyone other than uh, Michael Crawford in the role, unfortunately. Yeah. And to me, the, the nadir of... Uh of that particular uh, aspect comes up uh, in the latter, uh, right before the big end chase of the movie, when they they've they're doing this, and I, I actually I don't have anything deeper to say about it, but the the sequence when they're in the like in the in the Alps and they're like going up the thing, and then the, they get they get sniped down. That yeah. felt like pure James Bond to me. I was like, this is great. I am loving it. I'm doing great. But then once the once Oliver Reed and uh, his henchmen they they've managed to kidnap Natalia back and they flee to Monte Carlo. Um, and so Woody and Harry are going to gin up a plan to try and rescue them because they've been ordered back. The mystery is considered a failure, but they're like, you know what? You know, screw them. We're going to go rescue her. And they decide to do so by dressing up as oil sheiks. Yes. Um, yeah. And I'm reasonably certain that they are nothing racially wearing... insensitive about that entire sequence. <laughs> no, uh, it is. uh it's certainly not put in brown face or anything. Um, that is probably the word like that. That's the point for me where I'm sitting here going, why did I do this to myself? Um, <laughs> and, the- and yet, and I'm going to apologize in advance for saying this. The makeup effect is really effective. 
forget the brown face part of it. Uh, yeah. It doesn't look like Michael Crawford until he rips off the prosthetics. I mean, from a prosthetic perspective, from a pure technical, let's make this person not look like this person. Uh, I was kind of impressed, despite the fact that the entire time this was like a Jamie Farr, Arab chic, horrible stereotype. There is a part of my brain that was like, you know, hey, Buena Vista really shucked out for some uh, <laughs> for some good prosthetic makeup work on here, as racist as it may be. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Do we have to hand it to them? Who knows? I don't know. Uh, but it, look, it could have been worse. I don't remember there being any attempt at an accent there. It's still just Woody sounding like Woody. So, look, thank goodness for small. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I, th- I think <laughs> I, I think both within the script and outside of the script, there was like, maybe we shouldn't have him talk as much here. Maybe it's to try and keep him as silent They probably as filmed it sequentially and were like, this isn't working. Let's go more silent. <laughs> And yet, once they do manage to sort of get Natalia back and we're lining up for the big finale, we get to the boat chase, which is uh, like, again, like this is this this one I feel veers more into like the like Moonraker type James Bondy kind of stuff where we're we're getting a little bit sci fi because there's like lasers and shit. But like that boat chase fucks. It's great. I love it. Beautifully put, by the way, like there's there's Goldfinger James Bond and then there's Moonraker James Bond and the boat is purely in the Moonraker contingent. But yeah, no, you're 100 percent right there. Well, and I mean, and that's and Moonraker James Bond is like Star Wars James Bond. So like, but the but yeah, like at, at no point. Again, just again, despite the fact that again the movie starts off with him being like, "I won't do anything unless you can do it in real life." Also, here's my design for a boat that chews lasers. Um, Like, despite the fact that none of that makes any sense, when they are in the boat and you know they are doing boat combat with the bad guys who are shooting rockets at them and they're shooting lasers back at them, I'm not at any point like being like, "This isn't realistic." I'm just like, "Nope, I'm fully on board." This is a great boat chase. Uh, The 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 admittedly the way that the bad guys meet their end by Oliver Reed just being like, no, I'm done with this and jumps out of the boat. And then the, 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 the henchman stays on the boat long enough and is distracted and doesn't notice he's running into the rock and dies that way. That, that part's maybe not like the most like dramatically exciting way to go out, but like the movie, the chase up until that point has been so good that you're just kind of like you coast by on the vibes. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a fairly strong kind of third act set piece. Um, and, and again, just kind of speaks to how certain segments of this film are quite enjoyable. The, the one thing I want to ask John, cause I don't know how much more we can talk about God tour, man. This uh, is a slight th- movie. Th- this yes. is not a movie <laughs> that really has like a lot of thematic heft. You know what movie I feel like needs significantly less uh, qualifications when we talk about how fun it is, uh, is our second movie for this episode, which is The Wrong Guy. is a 1997 comedy uh, starring Dave Foley, Dave Higgins, Jennifer Tilly, uh, Calm Fior, and Joe Flaherty. This is like primarily a Dave Foley vehicle. Um, 
I don't actually know if it was ever released theatrically. Um, like my my history with this is that uh, it, it not, doesn't go so much to my like young childhood years as this was uh, in my uh, in my high school days. Uh, our youth pastor once rented it uh, for a movie night, and we just she just picked a movie. She's like, "Okay, Dave Foley, well, we're just going to watch it." And I never heard of it, and for years would trade lines with my friends from the youth group about this movie. And then one, a few, like many years later, I found a copy of it on a random DVD bin. I was like, Oh shit. And so ever since then I watch it every few years and Chris will be the first uh, to tell you uh, (laughs) how many times I have tried to get him to watch this movie. Uh, Chris, how would you describe my efforts in that regard? Uh, Valiant, but unsuccessful until I was forced to watch it because of the theme of the podcast. Well, and, and, and so my, my, it's been like years. It was, I mean, yeah. we've known each other for probably seven, eight years now, I think. Uh, I think we kind of met virtually in like 2015, 2016. And that sounds about right. 2015, 2016 was when you first started talking to me about the wrong guy. And my only concern going into this movie is that because you had, and like I wasn't, hopefully I wasn't uh, rude about it but because you had sort of proven resistant to uh my suggestions for your own reasons uh i was worried that like if you're actually going to watch this is this just going to be an entire bummer of an episode where because <laughs> if you weren't if i had this thought of like you might not be on board with actually watching it so if i am forcing you to watch it it's just going to make you have a bad time and then it's not going to be a great podcast um fortunately however as I'm sure you will tell me, uh, this might uh, these fears may have been potentially uh, not a concern. Um, because the reason why I picked this movie, the reason why I love it, is because it's just absolutely goddamn hilarious. Um, to give a quick setup for what this movie is, um, Dave Foley plays a, uh, a, a corporate uh, executive type uh, named Nelson Hibbert. He is a person who is instantly uh, forgettable, and to to the effect that like when he the intro is the, mo- the intro of the movie is him walking into his office, uh, walking past everyone who he's excited because today's the day that the uh, this, the next CEO is going to be announced and he's pretty sure it's going to be him and every person he walks past he says hello to enthusiastically and and everyone is like either ignores him or just steps out of his way they don't know who he is um, some of them actually <laughs> avert their eyes when they yeah see some of them that. are yeah, yeah yeah some of them actually are like no thank you this is unpleasant. Um, and the, uh, at, at the meeting, uh, by, by the, like, again, this movie is like, this movie is 90 minutes long is incredibly efficient at getting you to the meat of what this movie is, which is that by the time the movie happens, by the time the meeting happens, you already like can see from context clues that this is, this guy's completely out to lunch. He doesn't know what he's talking about. He's not going to get the promotion. And yet when the announcement is made that, uh, someone else is going to get the promotion. Uh, Nelson just has a complete freak out uh, about the whole thing, expresses his disgust and his frustration, his rage, and threatens to kill uh, the, C- the, the the current CEO, who is his prospective future father-in-law. Um, and, uh, and then later, when he goes to give the boss a piece of his mind, he finds the boss uh, uh, dead uh, at his desk. And 
because he knows that he threatened him with murder in front of a bunch of witnesses, he immediately jumps to the conclusion that everyone's going to think that I killed him. And so I must now leave my whole life behind, abandon my job, my house, my car, my fiance, and live on the run as a fugitive. Meanwhile, immediately, the cops have the security footage of who actually killed him, uh, who actually killed the boss, and no one is looking for him. And yet, because of a series of like weird coincidences, the person, the killer that they're actually trying to catch, who's played by Calm Fior, uh, they keep basically uh, Nelson, uh, Dave Foley, and Calm Fior keep basically on parallel paths where the cops are chasing them. And so then they, everyone is thinking that the the cops are chasing them when it's actually just a series of you know weird accidents and mistakes, and. I mean, the, there's other stuff that happens in the movie at the end, but that's the basic pre- setup for the movie. You should um, uh, note as well that Confior, who is the killer, because of these coincidences, also thinks that Dave Foley is like a criminal mastermind. See, that's that. Yes, that's that's that 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 was something that I was struck by to this time is because obviously the movie foregrounds at every single possible moment how much of a fucking dumbass Dave Foley is, yes. and 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 to glorious effect, but because. And, and 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 how hyper competent uh, Calm Fior is as as an assassin, yes. and yet because of those weird accidents, actually not unlike Condor Man, he has some he comes up with some erroneous assumptions about uh, Dave Foley, thinking that he's a super cop uh, who's on his trail, and so he starts chasing Dave Foley to try and take him out so that he can get away, and that's how they just sort of keep on all sort of fumbling in the same general direction towards each other before, you know, things are finally resolved at the end. Um, God, I, I, I'm going to, we, we, obviously this is your first time. Cause this, uh, yep. you know, as per the nature of this, this particular episode, but I want to ask this movie is very, again, a years of watching this, and I don't think I ever really clocked it, but this is very much a, a Hitchcock parody. And I want, and yeah. as someone who I suspect has seen a lot more Hitchcock than I have, I've seen some, but like for your first time going through it, how did the Hitchcockness of this feel to you? Uh, the beginning of the movie uh, is entirely Hitchcock. I mean, right to the opening credits, the 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 Saul Bass inspired opening credits. This this sets itself out right from the title sequence to be a Hitchcock parody. Um, and I'm, I'm going to take this a moment before I talk a little bit about about the movie to just profusely apologize to you, John, for not having taken advantage of this film earlier because I will relay what I said to you. Upon watching the first 15 minutes of the movie, I stopped watching the movie and I texted you and said, I don't think I can remember a movie where I have continuously laughed (laughs) for the first 15 minutes straight. Uh, This movie is hilarious. It is is what what if Kids in the Hall, but a Hitchcock movie. Although this is very much uh, Dave Foley and and Dave Higgins, who not only is in the movie, but also co-wrote the movie. Um, the wrong guy as a concept is a, a huge Hitchcockian trope, right? It, 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 it's something that's done again and again throughout his oeuvre. But what kind of makes this movie so unique is Dave Foley has quite possibly one of the best deliveries of any comedic actor in the world. 
And so much of this movie, right to the beginning of when he's walking into the office, getting ready because he knows that today's promotion day and he thinks he's going to get the promotion. Just the way he is so ingratiatingly saying to everybody, big day today, guys. Good morning. Big day today. And they are so put off by it to when he gets told that he is not going to be the CEO. His reaction to not getting the CEO is maybe one of the funniest things I've seen, like literally in the last 20 years. <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna just quickly interject here because the best part of that, that, that whole freakout is when he says, "My God, man, I am engaged to your daughter," and and the boss's response is, "Yes, but you're engaged to uh, my daughter Constance, who you know, but the guy who's getting the job is engaged to my favorite daughter Daphne." Which and in itself, then, so stop there for a second. That in itself is a funny joke. That's a great. And joke. a normal comedy would stop at that funny joke. <laughs> this movie does not. <laughs> Because Dave Foley then says, what kind of man has a favorite daughter? And if he does, he should label them favorite and not favorite. And then, I, and then he goes on, then he goes on to other stuff. But then the boss actually picks that joke back up because as he's being dragged away, he says to he says to Dave Foley, you know, the only reason you're not fired is because you're engaged to my daughter Constance, who although she is a great disappointment to me, is still my daughter. <laughs> I have to give you credit, too, for your interpretation of his line delivery is really, really good and strong. Like You, you kind of nailed the way that he does the oh, <laughs> favorite I, and not favorite doctor. The, it's it's again, great. This movie is absolutely like ingrained into the, <laughs> the, the neurons of my of my brain. It shows. Um, it shows. I mean, but the, the, the whole first half of this movie plays on those Hitchcock tropes and it's fantastic when he goes to give the boss a piece of his mind um, and he, the boss is dead with a knife in his back just the the sequence of events that occurs escalates and escalates to a point where you don't think it can get any funnier and it does so it starts with he drop he falls face forward on on the desk you see the knife sticking out Dave Foley freaks out screams like a woman and one of the best parts of the movie the running joke is everyone thinks he's a woman yeah and, of, and without malice it's just like yeah, go go get that woman like, yeah that's go a get man. that woman and, and like, then really? someone will go oh that's a man <laughs> the person's like really i didn't know that like they don't make a lot of it but it's so wonderful he takes the knife out of the of the boss's back now he realizes he's holding the murder weapon he's got blood all over him he doesn't know what to do he tries to stick the knife back in and then <laughs> oh the my attempts, in the attempts of doing all this he's now the whole room is covered in blood he's covered in blood he walks out of the office everyone looks at him covered in blood Again, with a knife the joke should stop there. It doesn't stop there. And he runs out of the office. He fakes a nosebleed. He puts the knife in his coat jacket, gets in the elevator. He's in the elevator, covered in blood. The knife falls out of his suit. A guy picks up and goes, I think this is your knife. He's like, that's not my knife. He goes, no, I'm pretty sure it is. Takes it, runs out, fakes a nosebleed to get out of the building, runs to a bridge. This might be one of the, my favorite moments. I, I watched it with my wife, and this was her favorite moment. He tries to get rid of the knife. He throws the knife off a bridge. The knife throws off a bridge. It lands on the top of a police boat. <laughs> the police grab the bloody knife, look at him on the bridge he doesn't know what to do so he immediately just drops to the ground 
still Clearly fully visible. visible. He's, he's on the not, bridge, like, just laying he's down. He's not obscured at all. He's just he's just lying down on the. Bridge. Oh my goodness! It is so funny, it, and yet it, and because he's a non-presence, like to all of the characters, no one ever registers him. Like the cops are just like, yeah. I don't know what that person's about, even though they just had a bloody knife thrown onto their boat. <laughs> I, I like, mean, that's the tone of this film. It, it is almost pitch perfect black comedy uh, for most of its runtime. The whole time that this is going on, as you mentioned, um, and this is where the other call out I, I, I have to give is um, the whole time everyone is aware that he is not the killer because there's video footage of the actual killer, um, Comfior, who is a great character actor. If you've seen him in one thing, you, you know how, how good he is. He always puts out a good performance. But in the video footage... He kills um, the person and then escapes through lifting himself up through a hatch in the ceiling. This is observed by the lead detective, Detective Arlen, who's played by Dave Higgins. Um, and you and I were talking about this earlier in the break, but for me, I first knew about Dave Higgins. He used to be on a comedy show on Comedy Central called The Higgins Boys and Gruber. It was a sketch comedy show. It was Dave Higgins and his brother and this guy, Gruber. I can't remember his name, but Dave Higgins was always the funniest one of the bunch. And he is, uh, he, he's a rather heavy set kind of <laughs> uh, lazy looking individual. That's the character he plays in this as, as, as well. But uh, he is astounded by the physical ability of this guy to climb and lift himself into the ceiling hatch. And his running joke of always commenting on this, this is too tough. You should have seen this guy. He literally <laughs> pulled himself through the ceiling. Is, for me, it is the funniest part of the movie his constant insistence that this criminal mastermind can never be caught because did you see him lift himself up into the ceiling it's just brilliant I, just even now i can't stop laughing it might be well, one of the funniest uh, I, things i've ever seen well if you need a second to compose i'll i'll sort Please. of expand on on his arc uh, his his part of the movie yeah. like for for me you talked about how points at which the most movies would stop the joke but this movie just keeps like <clears throat> keeps expanding it keeps developing it of course not only do the cops know that uh not only do the cops know that dave foley didn't uh kill anyone uh while they're going the the whole plot of the cops is that at, at every single opportunity dave higgins uses uh <clears throat> basically he, he's given the resources to like do whatever he needs to to stop the killer and so he basically spends the whole movie going to like strip clubs fancy restaurants yeah. broadway musicals broadway. just like you know it's funny the, the 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 killer's not at this broadway musical either like <laughs> just it, it, no one like, we don't want to look too conspicuous get two call girls and see if one of them can be a blonde asian <laughs> Yeah. And then that joke plays off when he's actually at Broadway. It's great. Yeah. And the I, I feel like the other part of the movie that we should talk about, and because there's stuff I like about it, but I have a feeling that it's perhaps not quite as like firing at full blast is about halfway through the movie, um, he runs into oh actually, before he does that, he does have a brief he does briefly hitchhike with um oh, what's his name? Uh oh with Enri Enrico um, Colatoni. Yeah, Colatoni. From he, just he has me, one of, among yeah. other things. So so he briefly hitchhikes with him and they start talking about like conspiracy theories and he talks about how he The JFK no bullet theory? The, the no bullet theory that JFK's head just exploded. <laughs> or no, the words he exactly uses are his head just did that. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Which is absolutely, like, again, he's not in the movie much, and so we won't talk about him much, but that line of his head just did that. It's great. <laughs> it's so fucking good. But then he finds himself being picked up by Jennifer Tilly, um, who is this... Uh, you know, small town uh, country girl who uh, lives with her dad and they are on hard times and she brings him back uh, and, and she also has narcolepsy. She, which is a thing. Don't don't bury the lead. She also happens to be narcoleptic at the most yeah. inopportune that, moments. Uh, other than like I say, her defining characteristics are she's Jennifer Tilly along with everything that comes with that. Oh, and my then, goodness. And then, yes. And then the uh, character trait number two, she's narcoleptic. Um and so the for the a good chunk of the second half of the movie is about how he sort of settles in with her and her family and and they're on hard times things have not been going well for dad's business and like they live out in the country so you assume at first that these are farmers um and the 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 gag the overarching gag of the second half of this movie is that he is a small, t- a poor small town country banker who is constantly being threatened by the rich uh, corporate farmers who want to take <laughs> his land and turn it into a pasture for dairy cattle. And that joke probably doesn't deserve to be as long as it is in the movie as, as much time as it takes in the movie. However, the actual scene where the, the the rich farmer uh, comes to the bank and starts intimidating uh, Joe Flaherty, who plays Jennifer Tilly's dad, uh, along with them. And so it basically starts doing all the like stereotypical rich banker stuff, but as a farmer instead, like flip, like doing that whole flip of it. That that one scene to me is really good. And if you had just made it it's that great. one scene, it would have been great. Like the way like the way and when it ends and the the farmer is like. To the broccoli fields, Jedediah. Like to the broccoli fields, Jedediah <laughs> is another one of those things that just plays in a loop in my head constantly. Um, it's a weird yeah. switch to go from Hitchcock to It's a Wonderful Life because this movie very like intentionally references It's a Wonderful Life in that whole piece. It it it, it actually replays the scene where the townspeople you know attack the savings and loan, uh, trying to withdraw all of their money. But in this case, it, everything is reversed, and you have Joe Flaherty kind of playing the, the Jimmy Stewart or or even the Uncle Billy character at, at, at that point. It is really funny, and the farmer is hilarious. But for me this is where it goes just a little too long and when we were Hitchcock 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 for so long to then jump into that and then try to resolve it back to where the conclusion is it it that's where the movie dipped for me a, a, a little bit it's not despite the fact it has one of the most wonderful Jennifer Tilly scenes ever <laughs> where she it, it and I'll, I'll take this couple of moments just to extol the virtues of Jennifer Tilly who I love and adore and have loved and adored forever. She is fully aware of her persona and she is fully aware of her kind of the way her voice sounds and the way her body looks and everything. And she and Dave Foley play that to perfect effect in the scene where she comes to him in the middle of the night in a, like a diaphanous see-through nightgown, which is backlit <laughs> and the way that he plays that with her. It's, it's absolutely wonderful. And, and she leans into it so well. Um, you have these great little moments like that, but if I'm going to lay any complaint on the film, it's that the whole sequence that takes place there um, slows down the momentum a little bit until the end where everything picks back up and it gets kind of riotously funny again. But when, let's, when, uh, let's just talk about how wonderful she And let's also talk about really quickly because we're past the point. Um, 
Dave Foley, obviously very known for Kids in the Hall, but this is very much a Dave Foley vehicle, except they do have one sequence in a motel with Kevin, with Kevin McDonald. McDonald. <laughs> that is when, equally hilarious. <laughs> And and he signs his and like one of the, like the a run like some of the best jokes in this movie are anytime someone asks him his name and he like completely fails to like come up with anything yeah. like convincing or meaningful like like for years my Twitter handle was Enemo Bag Jones because specifically because <laughs> when he wakes up in the hospital and the doctor asks him his name he says he they ask him his name and he's just looking around Enemobag for like Jones. words and he says my name is Jones uh, Enemo Bag Jones. <laughs> But one of the other, the other one is with the uh, uh, with Kevin McDonald, and uh, he's just you know runs a motel. He signs him in for the night, and uh, Dave Foley isn't really looking at what he's signing, and so he's like, oh, okay, well, have a good night, Mister Kelly Krantz. And they spend like like two minutes yeah. just trying to figure out the name that he'd written down. I think it was like Kelly Cranstonson Wilmington. I think I'll I'll have to check that in the edit to see if I got it right. Um, he, yes, uh, Kevin McDonald, brief but fantastic uh, appearance. Um, the the Jennifer Tilly scene that you're, I think, referring to when she comes to visit him, she is backlit in this, you know, see through nighty, and she she comes in to like give him some, com- you know, so to console him because you know things aren't great, and he's like, oh no, but when she steps forward, she steps out of the light, and so she's not <laughs> yeah. like you can't see. Well, so he, can't see he, her form. he he turns on on the lamp and realizes when he turns on his lamp, you can't see through her nightgown anymore she goes oh this light this light is so harsh do you mind if i turn it off <laughs> he turns it's it, like, back it wouldn't off. be it's like, it wouldn't be proper and she's like oh you're such a gentleman and he's like yes now if you could just like slightly rotate <laughs> if you could slightly rotate clockwise there <laughs> it's great so, it is so funny um and, and 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 she is so game for it she's so good and it sets up kind of I'm not going to, this isn't a spoiler, but hey, everything turns out okay at the end and they fall in love. Um, but to kind of get to the ending real quick, there's a whole, there's a standoff. Higgins is there. He is hilarious. Um, there is a fall from the top of the Statue of Liberty, although since it's like a little kind of mini town, the guy only falls like falls like three or four feet. <laughs> but at the end, there is the very, um, overdone and kind of cliche you know the two leads kiss as we crane out of the shot except remember she's narcoleptic so as they kiss she falls asleep and kind of falls dead in his arms it is so perfect pitch perfectly done as the the camera doesn't stop it just continues its romantic crane shot as you see this seemingly dead woman in his arms it's just a great ending and, and and here's the kicker for everyone listening. I need to stress this. This is a very Canadian movie. It did not do well at the box office. But here's the thing. This movie is available for free in high definition with no interruptions or commercials on the Kids in the Hall YouTube channel. Complete 1080p, perfect, pristine copy. So there is no reason no one on this earth can't go as soon as they hear this podcast and watch this delight of a movie. <laughs> Yes, if there is a if there is a takeaway from this uh, from this episode of this podcast is please for the love of God go watch the wrong guy and then when you love it go and then like tag kids in the hall or Dave yeah. Foley about how much you love it because I like 
I have seen Dave Foley respond to people commenting about how much they love the wrong guy. Like the man is clearly fond of this movie and you will only make his day better by telling him how good it is. It's if, if this movie had done what it should have done and gotten like the recognition when it came out, Dave Foley would be a superstar. I, he is literally one of the best like line deliverers I have ever seen for comedy. Uh, And this movie is a, I don't like to curse on the podcast. This movie is a fucking delight. It is wonderful. It, it most it. certainly fucking is. <laughs> All right. To close out the episode, we'll do our regular film recommendation segment. Uh, for this episode, I'll take the first swing. Uh, there are three movies I want to mention. One of which I already have, which is uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Mutant Mayhem. Uh, again, even if the, the, my, connection to the turtles at this point is mostly childhood nostalgia and i realize like a lot of it or at least some of it doesn't necessarily stand the test of time i watched mutant mayhem uh the kids wanted to go see it so we took them to the theater and it uh god bless into the spider verse because (laughs) uh like seriously this this movie is fantastic it's got a great uh it's got a great soundtrack score the characters are just weird and wonderful i'm so glad that we got to have bebop and rocksteady like fully represented uh in like it was it was it was everything i wanted and more than what i wanted it was it was it was delightful and i definitely uh if, if that stuff has any uh, value for you, it's definitely worth checking out. Um, I would add to that, actually. Um, being someone who is not, who's a little too old when Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles came out, I also saw the film, and it is a delight, even if you don't have all of that kind of background in you. Um, the, the parallels to Spider-Verse are apt, but I want to be clear, they're not emulating the same exact style. I, I love kind of the hand-drawn animation kind of style that they go for in the film. And it's, it's just really nice. It's really positive. It's really upbeat. Talk about like a family film. Like, I think it's a great family film. It talks about a lot of themes about growing up, about being a teenager. uh, And it's also just a delight from beginning to end. I can't agree with you more on that for a recommendation. Uh, The next movie up, uh, it's not that I necessarily have a, a ton of things to say about it, but uh, I watched Phantom of the Paradise. Uh, <sighs> holy goddamn shit! I was not prepared. I, I didn't. I, I just heard like it's a rock opera type thing on Phantom of the Opera, and I was like, okay, like. But, but, but it's but also a De Palma it, film. Yeah, yeah, it really is. <laughs> it very uh, much is. It. I. I would. I. I could see myself watching this every year in Halloween, just being like, this is like the, my, my wife and I have maybe like five to 10 movies that we watch every Christmas. And, uh, if I was to start making a similar type Halloween list, Phantom of the Paradise, I think would be on there. It is, it is just a blast. Uh, I'm so so proud of you, John. (laughs) Yeah. I, 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 I don't necessarily know I have strong needs to make qualitative comparisons to like Rocky horror or something. But like, to me, this feels a similar need of like, this is just like a blast to watch. You put it on, uh, you know, I I could see this watching this in sort of an almost like ritualistic, like a fun kind of way. Um, the last movie I'm going to recommend, uh, I, uh, Heather and I went to go see, uh, killers of the flower moon, the new Scorsese movie. I'm very envious because I haven't seen it yet. So, um, the, 
and after I watched the movie, uh, I actually ended up going back to read the the book uh, that it was based on, and the th- the the thing that th- I think the, the a lot of large part of the conversation around this movie is around the sort of um, uh, how the perspective of the Osage is represented, and the book is called like the the Killers of the Flower Moon, the Osage Murders, and the Birth of the FBI, and so the book is very much like here's an FBI story. And the people and the and the Osage people are part of the story, but it is sort of framed as a like this is an FBI story, and you can see why Scorsese would be drawn to something like that, right? <clears throat> or how that fits the model of a Scorsese type movie. Um, I also know that there was some. Uh, I know also know that there was some like reorganizing, reworking of the movie with some of that stuff in mind to like, okay, how can we like where's the focus of the movie and without necessarily spoiling anything uh i think the movie i I obviously can't speak for the osage people themselves but for me it does feel like the 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 movie starts off and spends a lot of good chunk of the first half actually dealing mostly with the people in the community and then there is a moment there's a moment in the movie uh, uh, where a specific person knocks on a door and then the door opens and it is a person, an actor, an actor you recognize who has not been in the movie up until this point. And when that person shows up, you're like, here we fucking go. It's a goddamn Martin Scorsese movie. <laughs> and and then it fucking goes off. Um, but, but, but that wouldn't happen in a movie if he had just sort of kept it to mostly to be the investigation. Like, I, I think that actually having this movie be about the people for a good chunk of the movie and then you bring in the other people to to do stuff is just like one of the most inspired choices he's made in a long time and and I won't say anything about the movie but the ending of the movie ha- I haven't had Scorsese hit an ending so hard for me since Last Temptation of Christ the ending is just fucking stunning um and I won't say anything more but it, yeah it's 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 to me it was just amazing and i can't recommend it highly enough oh, i cannot wait to see it and it actually your recommendations dovetail very nicely into my recommendations because my first recommendation is also a scorsese movie um i have been talking to you offline uh i love martin scorsese the gentleman at the time of this recording which is november 19th uh just celebrated a birthday um he is without fail one of the greatest american directors uh Ever, I mean, forget alive or dead or ever. He's just one of our greatest American directors. Um, and I've been talking to you about the fact that one of my favorite things of his that I now have actual physical copies of is uh, kind of got lost in the Miramax shuffle. But he had done two doc documentaries, uh, a personal journey through American film, where he charts kind of the American films that influenced him as a young man and then a director. And then uh, My Voyage to Italy, which is about his preoccupation and assumption with Italian films. Both of which I have now, um, I have put on my Plex for you to watch as well, John, um, and are definitely worth your time if you want to kind of learn more about how this director became the director that he is. But from a film perspective and a recommendation perspective, I kind of went back to the well, having not seen this in probably 10, 11 years, and I watched Goodfellas again. And yeah. 
uh, when you speak about Killers of the Flower Moon and kind of how Scorsese adjusted the tint of the story somewhat to take the focus a little bit away from the FBI as the protagonist and more about the Osage people, um, there's a weird parallel when I watch Goodfellas because Goodfellas traditionally has been so much of a kind of a Goomba, Gotti Boy type of a rallying cry for a certain type of people who... And I'm not saying nationality-wise, but a certain type of people who uh, love and admire the lifestyle of a gangster. And I don't think they're watching the movie closely enough because one of the things that I found astounding about Goodfellas, which is, for me, a five-star film completely, is how he shows that glamour and then shows the inevitable tragedy that is an end result of that lifestyle. Um, it is still just as powerful as when it came out in 1990, uh, and I cannot recommend it enough. I really can't recommend any Scorsese enough. He's he's just, in the last couple of months, I've been diving deeper into his filmography and deeper into his writings and his thought process on film in general. And he's a master that when he, he inevitably does leave, uh, is going to leave a titanic imprint uh, on the history of, of film. So can't recommend him enough. Um, Two other things I'm going to talk about very briefly. Um, just had occasion to watch David Fincher's latest movie, The Killer, with Michael Fassbender. I know you watched it as as well. Sure and it's, it's a fantastic movie. It's an interesting movie because, for me, it kind of comes across as one of his more comic films. There's not a lot of thematic weight to it. Sometimes a film is just the sum of its action, right? The sum of its plot. And that's what this is. This is about the ideal of an assassin and kind of it starts off with how we as an audience kind of glorify and idolize that kind of perfect assassin archetype. Think of like John Wick and, and how we kind of glorify John Wick as a persona. What Fincher does that's really interesting with the killer is he imbues that in Michael Fassbender. And then when we see his first hit, it goes horribly wrong and he fucks up completely and continues to fuck up as the movie goes on and, and how he has to deal with all of the mistakes that are being made. And it's really dryly funny. I'm shocked at how funny it is. Um, you and I had talked about he has a mantra as he goes on. <laughs> it's uh, I, I don't even remember what I said at, at this point. Um, I have now it's drank funny all every of time the scotch out. Yeah, but it's basically um, improvise, right? <laughs> it, 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 no, it's, it's it's always it's stick to the plan. Don't always have stick to the plan. Just, it's just it's just this like cold rationalistic. Right. I'm the perfect and automaton anticipate, of, like, don't perfection. improvise. Right. Yeah. Stick to the plan. Don't right. Anticipate. Don't improvise. Um, and he constantly says that, and it constantly every fails time. Him. Yeah, every time it fucks yeah. up, he says it again, and you're just like, <laughs> okay. Something that I noticed, what, and I actually think this connects Killers of the Flower Moon and uh, um, and the Killer. Not that there's a lot going on there, but both Scorsese and Fincher have protagonists that are famously often misinterpreted as like. <clears throat> no, they, these people are good. We want them, right. we like them, and we are uncritical of them and want we them to succeed, for these right? Yeah. What I think both Killers of the Flower Moon and the, the Killer are the both filmmakers trying to, like, maybe work a little bit harder to make their points across like to make it less susceptible to misinterpretation of like mm. no you fucking assholes you don't you aren't supposed to like these people and uh, i think both movies do that 
uh, put, seem to put more effort into it, uh, into being more clear about their intentions, I guess. Makes me more, even more excited to see Killers of the Flower Moon. Because I think that's one of the problems with, with, with Goodfellas is people so idolize that lifestyle and that persona, the persona of um, Ray Liotta and Robert De Niro and Joe Pesci, that they don't see his intent, which is like, no, you're not supposed to like these people. These are the bad guys. These are the people who are terrible, you know, and, and then it goes to its inevitable conclusion. Um, the killer, I will say, um, thematically, it doesn't have that weight. This is purely a mechanical film. It's here's a hit that goes wrong and the repercussions of that hit and what he has to do to kind of not make things right, but at least put his life back on the equilibrium that he wanted it to be. Um, but as far as process, I, there are a few directors that do it as well as Fincher. I mean, this is a masterclass in execution, regardless of the fact that maybe there's not a lot of thematic heft to the film. So super enjoyable from beginning to end. Uh, a, a joy to watch. I wish I could say the same thing for the fifth entry in the Indiana Jones series, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. Uh, I am a huge Indiana Jones fan. I saw the original in the theaters when I was a kid. Um, I actually have a very firm memory of my school brought Raiders of the Lost Ark to our auditorium when I was a child uh, and got to see it there as well. Love the films. The interesting thing about Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny is it made me a little fonder for Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Which is a weird thing to say. Uh, and James sure is. Mangold is a fantastic director. I've loved a lot of his films. But what Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny proved to me is there is an ineffable quality that Spielberg has that no one else has. And the joie de vivre, the, the joy, the thrill of a Steven Spielberg film is absent in Dial of Destiny. Uh, it doesn't help that this movie very heavily relies in its first kind of quarter on the de-aging process, um, which works to a degree until Harrison Ford opens his mouth and it is clearly an 80-year-old man speaking the lines of someone who physically looks in their 30s. It also wastes a lot of its cast. Um, I mean, Antonio Manderas might as well not even be in this movie. Jonathan Rhys Myers, is that his name? Or am I thinking yeah. of the other guy? The guy who plays Sala from Bridge of the Lost Ark. Oh, uh, John Rhys-Davies. John Rhys-Davies. Jonathan Rhys-Meyer's a completely different person. He, he, he's a younger dude, I <laughs> he's, think. He's a young man. Um, Jonathan uh, Rhys-Davies is not a young man. Uh, he's in it. He's okay. Um, this movie tries to kind of imbue the pulpy adventure and by the time of the third act it gets there but for, for the first two thirds it, it doesn't really quite get there I will say Phoebe Waller-Bridge uh, I love her I love Fleabag I love her I think she's wonderful I could see a world where she takes on the mantle of Indiana Jones and goes on her own adventures uh, that's not to be but ultimately this is kind of an inert movie um, that I wish had done more. It, 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 like, like I said, if it does anything, it makes me realize Kingdom of the Crystal Skull is not as bad as we think it is. Um, third act is wonderful. The first two thirds, mm, and that's right. where I'll leave it. <laughs> Fair enough. I mean, 
it seems like an inevitability that I'll check it out at some point. Um, but you have to sit through the first two thirds of the movie before you get to the good parts is never, uh, never a great sign. Um, also, lest it should be clear, I just want to circle back real quick to one quick point. There is nothing, com- uh, lest I have given the impression that there's anything comedic about the Killers of the Flower Moon. It is not like <clears throat> they're they're more. Oh. <laughs> uh, Scorsese is more upfront about uh, how you should feel about your the protagonist in that movie. However, it's not it's not played for laughs. It's uh, not 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 like the killer is for Fincher. Okay. <laughs> just just to be clear. <laughs> oh, and. Is, um- I was going to bring up a fourth movie because I didn't know if you were going to bring it up, but you and I have both watched and adored, and maybe we'll just leave it like this. If you have the opportunity and have not seen the film Ricky O, the story of Ricky, you Hmm. probably should do so (laughs) because you will never see another film like it, and it'd be well worth... Your time, Jesus Christ! You know, Criterion just uh, just announced that they're doing the heroic trio on uh, for uh, for physical treat, yeah, yeah, for physical copies, right? Like Jesus, like come on, Criterion, do Riccio, do Riccio. It's on the Criterion channel right now. So if you have access to to Criterion, check out Riccio, the story of Ricky, and pray that one day, one day, if we are lucky and we are good enough that the Lords will bestow upon us a Criterion edition of Ricky the story of Ricky. I literally don't know why people keep asking for like, I just want, I just want them to do a good Mortal Kombat movie because Ricky already exists. Ricky the story of Ricky is the best Mortal Kombat movie you will ever see. It most certainly is. <laughs> uh, Chris, thank you so much for letting me drag you through uh, the, ep- the movies for this episode. In some cases uh, to w- amazing effect and in some cases to uh, mixed bag. It uh, was an absolute pleasure, sir. Thank you. No worries. I'll, uh, I'll, uh, do my best to be born again next year. Um, <laughs> oh wait, that sounded weird. <laughs> that did sound weird, but go with it. It's fine. It's fine. Uh, Stay safe, everyone. Take care of each other. We will catch you all next month uh, for another episode of Cinema Duel. Uh, I don't think we have any current ongoing features on the website, but go to cinemaduel.com, read some of Dan and Chris's Hooptober uh, shenanigans if you haven't caught up on that, because they're all done, and thank God for that, I'm sure. Uh, and we'll uh, catch you next month. Yeah, and uh, you know, quick preview, we will be having new recurring content starting January. We'll tell you more about it when we actually start it. <laughs> Just in case <laughs> yeah, we let's, don't. Let's- <laughs> yeah, let's not say too much more in case we actually don't get around to it. <laughs> Sounds good. Thanks, All everybody. Right, care, Be everyone. safe. Have a good November. We'll see you next month. Bye. All right. Bye. Bye.